Welcome to Bootlegged Innovations with your host, John Schultz. Each week, we show you how to make your business enterprise more efficient with proven techniques that will help you spend less, break less, and make more. Now, here is John Schultz. Welcome to Bootlegged Innovations. This is episode eight. Uh, this is a title of this show is going to be Don't Become a Dinosaur. Uh, as we start talking about digital transformation and the role of security. Uh, Want to start off this week like we always do with our mission statement. Uh, we, we've, our mission is to bridge the gap between the needs of the business and the ability of the workforce to execute in a secure and resilient environment. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about security and resiliency from a physical security. And today we're going to be talking about it more from a uh, overall network application cybersecurity uh, sort of sort of place. I uh, want to start this week by thanking my guests. Last week, we had an amazing show. I uh, got great feedback on the show. We uh, did a little bit of a pivot. We talked about smart cities. Uh, and Ladders of Opportunities. And uh, my guests were the amazing uh, executive director of the Jacksonville, uh, out of Jacksonville, uh, Jeff Sheffield. He's the executive director of the the North Florida Transportation Planning Organization. Also had Jeff Winkler on. He is the head of basic needs uh, for the United Ways 211. Uh, And then we also had Stephen Poland. Uh, serial entrepreneur, uh, CEO of both Assessment Technology Group, as well as uh, Pelocity. And the topic of the show was all about how the smart city movements could make sure that all ships rise and that uh, how we could um, create ladders of opportunities through the smart city movement. Uh, this week, believe it or not, I was, I'm finally on the road. I was able to travel. Uh, and uh, this experience has been a bit surreal for me. I was actually just talking to my two guests prior to kicking off the show, uh, going through airport that is almost completely empty, uh, seeing the shops empty, the planes out of, you know, at least my planes uh, were at about a third capacity. Uh, and even when I get out and I walked around um, the, the couple of towns that I'm in in South Carolina, just the uh, the lack of activity, uh, it's pretty surreal. And I'm hoping that this isn't the uh, the new normal for, for very long. Uh, so what have I gotten on, on my to-done list uh, since last week? Uh, well, most importantly, uh, I got to kick off this trip by spending a couple of days with uh, my amazing daughter. Uh, Jessica lives in Greer, South Carolina. She's a practicing architect, graduate from Clemson University, uh, and kind of continued on the saga of uh, my family's history, which uh, every week I share a personal story. Uh, My father and my mother were the only two on either side of their family to ever get a high school education. As a matter of fact, my dad was the first one to get a driver's license. Uh, My cousin Scarlett was the first one to... uh, to, to get a associate's degree and prove that with an associate's degree, she could, uh, could get a life for a better life for herself in another city. Uh, I was the first one to, uh, get my, uh, my, my bachelor's degree. And then my daughter has kind of carried that threshold, uh, to a whole nother level by, uh, being the first to actually get her master's. So extremely proud of, uh, proud of my daughter. And I got to spend some amazing time with her and, uh, and all the projects that she's actually uh, working on. Uh, 
This week we go into full production uh, with the cognition system that we that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in the physical security and surveillance space uh, in a manufacturing environment uh, to really help manage the uh, the safely back to work initiative powered by HPE. Uh, we're extremely excited about it because it not only allows us to manage people flow, uh, but also do contact tracing, temperature screening, uh, touchless entry. Uh, but at its core, it is a vision analytics platform run on an AI engine that really enables just countless numbers of future use cases that we're looking forward to uh, to doing on the Cognition platform. Uh, we signed a couple of very high-profile independent bootleggers uh, to uh, to join our team over the next few weeks. So I'll be exposing the uh, the audience to uh, to some of our independent bootlegger network. Uh, we identified and uh, brought on board a new product uh, for helping with the uh, IoT play and energy management of HVAC systems that will integrate seamlessly with our energy intelligence offering. And we continue to get tremendous traction uh, with our enabled connected frontline workers, a portion of our workforce intelligence offering. So those are some of the things that uh, over the course of the last week, uh, I've been able to move from the to-do list to the to-done list. Uh, before we jump directly into uh, this week's topic, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't point out the obvious, and that is that since I am on the road, uh, my two roosters, uh, Ricky and Silver, uh, will not be joining us on this week's show, and I know that'll probably end up hurting my ratings next week, uh, but Ricky and Silver are safely at home on the property, uh, so uh, just... Uh, they won't be chiming in with their timely commentary like they have on every other episode of, uh, of, of bootlegged innovations at this point. So the topic this week on not just, you know, don't become a, a dino seesaw and the whole uh, standing on the shoulders book. We actually have the author standing on the, on the shoulders uh, with us this week. Uh, it's been one hell of a learning curve for me. Uh, I'm an OT guy. I come from the operational side of the house, mechanical engineer, economics background, but really, you know, have always been kind of an IT novice and uh, learning about, uh, you know, GRC platforms, which stands for governance, risk and compliance, learning about the difference between DevOps and Sec DevOps. Those were all things that just a few years ago were completely foreign to me. Um, and uh, to use a Chris Coulson, a good friend of mine's term, I've actually had to go into immersion over the last uh, the last few years into this topic and read everything I could get my hands on. Uh, even invested in a uh, in a in, in a platform company uh, that is that is in this space as well. Um, so my guests this week are examples of the types of people that I've had to surround myself with. My first guest uh, is a bit of a digital transformation evangelist. He's an ambassador to the DevOps Institute. Uh, he is also the author of the book, Standing on Shoulders, Leader's Guide to Digital Transformation. Uh, Jack Marr, uh, can you please introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit more about the uh, DevOps Institute and kind of your journey uh, to get to where you are as a digital transformation evangelist? Sure. Thank you very much, John. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be here and, and to speak with you and your audience. So DevOps and the DevOps Institute and I go back uh, about four years now. Uh, the DevOps Institute 
is uh, essentially the industry standards organization, sort of the de facto group that maintains DevOps practices, but it is really focused on the human side of DevOps around training, information sharing, knowledge sharing, um, and helping folks find the right kinds of resources. And so they reached out to me based on the experience that I'd had at Nationwide, um, which resulted in a book, Standing on Shoulders, uh, Leader's Guide to Digital Transformation. Uh, Carmen and I wrote that book after implementing DevOps practices across the business units within Nationwide Insurance. And we realized that there were a lot of lessons that we had been very fortunate to learn because we were in the right place at the right time and got to work with really smart people. And so the standing on shoulders part really is an homage to the fact that we're not bringing uh, new stuff to the table here, but rather helping collect and put it into one place that is easy to consume. Because as you mentioned, there is a lot of stuff here and there's been a whole lot of movement in a very short period of time. And no one knows that more than the folks in the information security space, where not only do you have to be aware of what's going on, but you, you have to be out in front and totally immersed into what the capabilities are so that you can address those in a reasonable way. And so that becomes one of the most important parts of some of the key things we're looking for in DevOps, which are focusing our capabilities on business success by engaging all of the folks that are in our organization that create and deliver value along that value stream that will enable them to become innovative and stay plugged in as we continue to see the increasing frequency and amplitude of change. So just like you, there's a whole lot of folks that um, are really uh, running as fast as they can to keep up with these dramatic changes. And, and some of them are so amazing, especially in the cybersecurity space. And so I'm, I'm happy to come and share the little bit that I know what I've seen with you and your listeners. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting a little later in the show. I also want to get into a story where you tell me that, uh, you know, about your little bit about your military background, the fact that your digital transformation journey started as early as 1981, which is, uh, which is, which is pretty, pretty, pretty early whenever, uh, whenever you start talking to people in the marketplace as to when they believe their digital transformation journey uh, actually started. I look forward to chatting about that because it's a cool story. So my second guest, um, has previously been a uh, a special agent investigating cybercrime with the uh, with the FBI. He's also a former CISO for web.com and he now wears multiple hats uh, as a kind of a CXO uh, depending on what he needs to play that day, CTO, COO, CISO uh, for a uh, for a platform company called Taurus Seer. Uh, Alex Borhani, can you please introduce yourself uh, to the audience and explain a little bit about uh, a little bit about your background and uh, and and about about Taurus here? Well, thanks so much, John, for having me on the show. Really appreciate the opportunity. Um, again, I'm Alex Borhani. I was uh, prior to to helping uh, co-found uh, the Taurus here platform. I was a CISO at a technology company in Jacksonville called Web.com. And prior to that, I was a special agent, a supervisory special agent and a unit chief over at FBI, specializing in uh, computer intrusion investigations, particularly focusing on uh, cyber terrorism. Uh, it was one of my areas of uh, specialty. Uh, 
also help facilitate the deployment um, and the uh, facilitation of uh, several pretty uh, either big data or or cloud-based uh, technology platforms within the FBI. And that's kind of a, a, my short little brief background. Fantastic. Uh, so let's get right into the show now that we've completed the introductions. Jack, could you define for the audience, because uh, a lot of my audience, uh, you know, are are business owners, uh, they're manufacturing, uh, they're, they're manufacturing leaders, um, they, but they may or may not really understand the whole concept of DevOps. So could you define DevOps for the audience? Absolutely. It's really bringing the, the teams that have developed and continue to develop our technology solutions and the operations folks that are responsible for running and supporting those applications into a much better alignment. Um, historically, we've uh, not done a good job of that. We've had folks that wrote software and then tossed it over the wall to the folks in operations and said, here you go, you're it, without uh, a whole lot of, of interaction in between. And there was a really strong incentive to go in opposite directions for those teams. Folks in operations needed to have stability. They needed to make sure that applications were available. Whereas developers were tasked with adding more capabilities and features. So constant change, which is just the opposite of what we want from a stability perspective. So DevOps brings those groups into concert. It enables a much better focus on the outcomes that our businesses are really interested in. And so bringing those together, not only does it improve that, but some of the more important things that it brings is the ability for faster cycles that are in better alignment with what our business needs to do. And it can enable innovation when we put together these teams that are collaborative in a generative environment. So, Alex, as I talk to people like yourself and Jack, uh, I've been getting a lot of reference lately uh, that we're now entering into a new age of DevOps. What do you mean by that? And uh, and what's really driving that new age of DevOps? Well, well John, the I was just kind of to add on in terms of historical context in terms of what DevOps is. I, I like to even take it back back to the 1970s, where um, especially since you have a lot of uh, audience members within uh, within the manufacturer area, the DevOps uh, true historical context really goes back to to the days of Toyota and how they had to really implement lean operations in order to make sure they're able to compete with the American car manufacturers. So with that mentality, uh, really the mindset was to not have any waste, to significantly decrease the general amount of uh, cycles that go in, in terms of actually manufacturing a vehicle, putting assembly in a, uh, uh, facilitating an assembly line, and then pushing it out to the consumer, and, and also uh, ensuring that it doesn't have to come in for repairs. Um, and, and because of that mindset that Toyota became uh, one of the leading car manufacturers in the world, um, and DevOps was kind of born out of that notion of uh, automating as much as possible and eliminating as much waste as possible. To, to go in terms of the new age of, of where the iteration is taken within DevOps is, yes, you have that context of, of iterative um, automation, um, and elimination through lean practices. Um, but then you now have to encapsulate 
uh, the the concepts of DevOps from a software development lifecycle or product development lifecycle to ensure that security is is kind of encapsulating the entire process. Because the last thing you want to do is push out a product that is is susceptible to to unauthorized access, and uh, at the same time end up biting the company uh, in the rear. Uh, once the once it's actually been released, because uh, that causes all kinds of regulatory controls this day and age, particularly within the European Union, uh, California, New York, as well as Canada, are, are pushing out uh, privacy legislature uh, that makes it much more complicated for businesses uh, in the event there's unauthorized access. Uh, and because of that, uh, as companies are adopting DevOps, uh, they want to make sure that security is is part of that process and and not like the old ways where after a product is created, then the security team or the compliance team comes in and takes a look at it. Um, you end up enabling your developers to become security experts, to become compliance experts, hopefully not by having to uh, get them through traditional training, but really by giving them the, the tools so that uh, they can facilitate and building secure products without having to, to, to really have that knowledge base. So, Jack, let's dive into another conversation that you and I recently had, and that was that digital transformation is happening with or without you. And really what's recently happened with COVID-19, we're just starting to uh, to really see, uh, you know, digital transformation taking off in a way that uh, that perhaps I think it's accelerated the process probably by three to five years uh, by having the pandemic. And you talk about the fact that there's a couple of dichotomies going on. And that these dichotomies uh, are actually creating an explosion in the attack surface. Um, could you, couple one, talk about those two dichotomies, but then also explain what you mean by uh, the, the the explosion of the attack surface from a security perspective? Yes, uh, the the COVID nineteen. Crisis has really accelerated digital transformation. To what extent, it's hard to see or know yet. But certainly, the way that we have had to come to grips with the way we work together has leveraged the experience of a number of folks. We began this journey in most organizations with some sort of a bring your own device. Uh, kind of an approach. And that made security much more complicated for our organizations because of all of these new devices that we had little to no control over. And when everybody went home, that just exploded the number of devices and the number of opportunities for folks to attack our networks, our systems to, to get our data. And that's what I mean by the explosion of, of the attack surface. Not only are we no longer in this secure perimeter of an organization where we at least theoretically or believed we had some control with the uh, password um, access into our network. Now it's completely spread across everyone's home network, all of the intervening networks. And so the, the number of, of opportunities for folks to get our data and to penetrate our systems is, is just uh, exponentially increased. That comes along with the fact that our folks are now looking at the way we work differently than we did before. 
or no longer do we have nearly so many individual contributors that are heads down, but rather we're moving more and more into agile teams that need to collaborate on an ongoing basis. And tools like Slack have really changed the dynamics even of our communications and Zoom, where we are right now. Those things have all been leveraged without the kind of uh, uh, analysis and control that we would have normally wanted or expected, or we may have even enjoyed in our, uh, in our organizations to maintain that security. So that's sort of evaporated for us, which is really put our security folks on notice. And we've no longer able to do the things we need to do in a manual way. It just doesn't scale sufficiently. So DevSecOps becomes a cornerstone to how we do this responsibly uh, and deliver what we need to to our organizations. So Alex, Tor Sears answer to this actually even, you know, obviously pre-COVID uh, is something that you guys refer to as automating cognitive GRC. Uh, can you unpack that for us a little bit first, just simply by defining what you mean by automating cognitive GRC and what cognitive GRC even is? Well, just uh, from a traditional notion of, uh, I guess, GRC when it comes to most organizations is that you have your internal audit um, or, or even an external audit team that usually comes in and they request for material, uh, particularly evidentiary material to indicate that you're meeting these regulatory or privacy controls that are mandated for your industry. Uh, but what's, what, that causes multiple issues, particularly because if you're a manufacturer or you're a company that has several platforms or products that are under government scrutiny or regulatory scrutiny, um, you end up burning a significant amount of cycles uh, trying to appease the regulatory bodies or the internal audit or external audit bodies to, to show or prove that these controls are being met. Um, and those cycles are usually an impact on the people who are creating these products and want to make sure that they're building the best products. And from, a, from the proper DevOps philosophy of, of eliminating waste, not having to spend cycles doing things that actually don't improve your product much, uh, the notion of, of auditing your platform um, could significantly be be automated uh, through uh, what we're calling is the, the automatic uh, cognitive GRC solution. Now, that, that explains, I guess, the automation part. The, the cognitive piece is well, now that we are able to collect and store this information uh, that is needed to meet these regulatory controls, we can now start providing recommendations to the company to hopefully focus on things that the GRC uh, generally doesn't look into. These are these constant iterative elements that an organization should be seeking in terms of improving itself uh, or imp improving its products. And instead of having to wait, let's say for your auditors, um, or one of the managers to start thinking about, well, this product, product that we're building has certain issues or problems, our cognitive engine will hopefully proactively provide that insight or that information uh, to the company for them to take corrective action. Um, again, instead of waiting for something to be detected at the conclusion of our product being pushed out, or our platform is designed to be part of the entire lifecycle, the design from, from its first being built all the way to when it's released and all the life cycles that happen after the release of the product. 
Yeah, it was one of the things that really uh, surprised me. The deeper that I started diving into this particular area over the last few years was that, uh, you know, I was always focused on and most of the conversation was always around kind of those external threats uh, with really not understanding all the attack surfaces that our own applications, uh, our own uh, development teams, whenever they write functionality in code, when they use open source, and uh, and bring it in without having the code level scanning and protections against those vulnerabilities just how many of that it's really about minimizing that attack surface so that the uh the external threats aren't uh as big a threat and that was one of the uh the real learnings over the last few years for me is that uh, it's not just about having you know about the external threats but it's really about minimizing that attack surface and that's one of the things that uh really attracted me to the uh to the torseer product uh so jack going back to this concept of this explosion of attack surfaces and you touched on it briefly earlier can you talk a little bit more about just how unrealistic it is uh for security and it teams to think that uh, they can continue to, to to leverage their manual and quite frankly largely siloed tools uh, as they try to manage this explosion of attack surfaces. Absolutely. And uh, almost any uh, information security professional you talk to will you know, be straight in saying they have been struggling with this for a long time. The, the capacity of need has exceeded what they can deliver especially in a manual way. And so it became largely a matter of prioritizing those things that were the largest risk or would have the biggest impact. And a lot of stuff slid through. And moving to a, a continuous testing approach that puts the information security professionals in a position of focusing more on consistency, on scalability of automated solutions, give us a much better perspective, both from how we leverage those talented resources, along with engaging our development teams and the rest of our pipeline development into the security process, improves the security posture for everyone. And that scalability becomes incredibly important as we begin to realize that we can't just focus on one or two things, that we create vulnerabilities with inconsistency. So having an automated solution that focuses our attention in the areas where we need to add value and automate the otherwise relatively toil kind of work um, that security professionals and not the least of which is to get uh, the information or get, excuse me, get the developers into this process, engaging them um, and enabling them to understand the impacts of what they do and be a part of that. We've seen to have a tremendous positive engagement effect on those developers. That's interesting from a leadership and change management perspective, how that, um, how by literally giving them the additional tools and transparency, they can not only become better developers themselves, but also feel more engaged in the process and knowing that the code that they're submitting is vulnerability free, as opposed to just not knowing what they don't know uh, and being able to have more transparency across the entire platform of applications that they're, that they're running across the enterprise. Uh, you know, Jack, Alex, Jack spoke to um, 
the fact that, you know, automation and continuous scanning. And one of the other things that Torseer speaks to is providing continuous assurance through what you guys refer to as the confidence cloud. What is What do you mean by continuous assurance and how does that tie into the C portion of this, the compliance piece with standards out there from, from NIST and ISO and HITRUST and others? Uh, and is this kind of your way of saying that uh, the platform enables an organization to be kind of audit ready all the time? Well, that, that's, a, that's probably a pretty much spot on point. Uh, the sense is that for continuous assurance, we're, we're hoping to just bake uh, the concept of risk management um, through the entire product lifecycle. It's, it's, all, it's already baked into the flow of the work that's being facilitated by the developers. Uh, that way, there, there's no surprises at the end. And with that in mind, the, this enables a company, if they want to hire a third-party audit company or an internal audit team, uh, or if the government comes in and wants to say, hey, what are you guys doing? Um, that information is available 24-7. You don't have to spend another 30 days to start collecting that evidentiary information. Um, the, the platform is designed to, to capture, acquire, and store that information um, and proactively share any of the findings from the platform uh, back to the, the users of the solution. This is particularly good for senior executives, managers, uh, they just want to keep aware of what's happening from a product perspective. It's, but it's a little bit more than just that because the assurance isn't just on the product. The assurance is really focusing on the overall health of the enterprise IT. Uh, we are providing uh, information to say if your development teams are really building a quality solution, not just one that's free from vulnerabilities, but one that is making sure it's being updated. There's no code rot that's occurring within the solution. There's a lot of companies that build products, push them out, and, and they don't get updated for a very long amount of time. And that code rot itself is significant risk to the overall organization as well, uh, as well as to the consumers. And it doesn't necessarily have to be from a vulnerability perspective. Uh, one of the reasons why the product really came into fruition was uh, the, one of our founders, um, his daughter's scenario, uh, which is a type 1 diabetic, um, they bought a mobile app uh, that was designed to help facilitate and monitor for the insulin levels for, for his young daughter. Um, and because the, the company didn't actually update or improve the code on the application that was released to the App Store, um, as the new phones got patches and updates, the app became obsolete. And it literally, and it, during one night, it didn't trigger any alerts. Um, and, and that is significant risk for an organization. Um, and uh, companies need to make sure that, especially if they're creating medical supplies, uh, they have to be really conscious of the life and death scenario that can lead to this. So manufacturing is the same way, uh, where there's going to be people moving around heavy machinery and equipment. Uh, uh, risk is, is always uh, present in those types of platforms. Now, that was a great expansion of not just talking about the GRC side, but the whole concept of code rot. Again, something that uh, somebody that's not from a development background uh, a couple of years ago did not have any appreciation for at all. Whenever I started uh, talking to uh, people like Jeremy and uh, that become dependent on those medical devices and, and what role code rot uh, can play in that, uh, it really is. Uh, it really it really was uh, it brought a whole new light to that to that discussion um, as we. 
Jack, I'm going to pivot back to uh, something else that you had mentioned because we just started touching on the fact that so much of DevOps and the work of the DevOps Institute is about the people side of things. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the new challenges that organizations are being faced with with regards to digital transformation, such as their leadership, their team structure, their tool adoptions, guardrails. Could you expand upon that? Because so much of of what DevOps is about is the the managing of the human capital side of the equation. Absolutely, and in, and in fact, we're almost. It's in a perfect storm when it comes to how the culture of our organizations is changing, whether we want it to or not. Um, from a leadership perspective, we need to make a dramatic shift in many cases where the, the senior leaders of today have largely come from backgrounds of command and control, individual contributors, um, and the, the reality of today's world, today's workforce, and the way we need to operate in in to be successful is to be much more collaborative and team-based. So the, the challenges are from a uh, leadership perspective, getting that transition, everything from how we define jobs and how we evaluate performance. We can't expect people to act in a team collaborative way if we're still grading them on their individual contributions in a competitive environment through what does it mean to be a servant leader? Today's leaders need to be in a position to understand the work that's being done so that they can remove the obstacles in advance of the team. They're no longer there to run the show, but rather to serve those folks that are actually creating and delivering the value that our organization brings to our clients, our customers, or our constituents. So making that shift, adjusting the, the organizational structures to enable teams, putting in the kinds of uh, tools that enable the kind of performance that we need, things like automated uh, uh, scanning so that our information professionals move out of this gotcha mode when everything is said and done to being collaborative partners and eliminating those silos, elevating the, the value that they bring to a more strategic level because we can automate uh, the tactical and operational pieces of that. I think that's a really interesting point that you make there, Jack, because tools like Torseer uh, and quite frankly, uh, you know, several other uh, new technologies that are in the marketplace create unparalleled levels of transparency. Amen. And a leader can you can either choose to use that increased transparency to uh, to drive positive change and to improve their team, or they can use it uh, as you know somewhat of a uh, you know more of a punishing way, more of a negative indication to claim that oh, well you submitted your code and look at all these vulnerabilities that uh, that your first pass code had, as opposed to using it as that, uh, that, that, that change agent opportunity and that servant leader that, uh, that you spoke to. Uh, before I move on to the next question for, for Alex, Jack, uh, I think this is probably, since we're talking about organization and leadership, I think this is a great uh, kind of break uh, in the show to uh, have you tell your story about digital transformation, 1981 U.S. military. Right. 
So uh, I showed up at uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky for uh, basic training, and I was uh, every bit the college boy that I was going to be known from then on as, um, because there was always much better ways to do what it was that we were doing, right? But I didn't understand the concept of the right way, the wrong way, and the Army way. <laughs> and what that army way turned out to be was something that was very consistent. It was reliable. Might not have been the fanciest, might not have been the highest performance solution, but it was something that everybody knew, everybody could understand, and the pieces were relatively interchangeable. And it was a whole shift in my thinking from this craftsman mentality of doing the best you could to understanding why this consistency and repeatability was so important. And it also helped me to look at how we could have uh, units or groups of folks that were so focused on mission and team and the outcomes that we were looking for that it really pivoted. My, when I look at my life, there was a, a dramatic shift in, in who I was and how I thought for those seven weeks of fun and games uh, in, in uh, Kentucky. And it really began then. And, and in fact, my girlfriend at the time, her father was uh, vice president of Mattel and he had one of the early Apple computers. So when I was able to get away, I started to play with computers and it began to occur to me that what we were doing was a part of what we would now call automation, uh, automation of capabilities and, and flow. And um, it really uh, was a pivotal moment for me. And, you know, having that Apple computer as part of it turned out to be very prophetic. Yeah. And having, uh, having our uh, former military followed by uh, somebody coming out of the FBI, uh, Alex, one of the, you've uh, had the role of CISO for a number of years now, but that role seems to be uh, evolving quite a bit. And I was just wondering if you would share with your audience kind of the difference between what the role has traditionally been for a CISO and kind of this new profile of the modern CISO moving forward. That's a really good question, um, Jack. Yeah, the, uh, I, I would say the, the traditional role of the CISO is kind of like the guardian of uh, corporate policy and, and the in, ensuring, I guess, a, a counter to what traditionally a, a DevOps solution would be, um, and kind of be more of a conservative. Hey, that's I'm going to be the guardian of of bringing in too much change at once, uh, which is then causes a high level of risk for organization. Uh, that's usually kind of was how uh, security, for the most part, would would deal with uh, challenges in the environment. Would be to minimize the number of new things coming into the organization so that they could kind of control the overall risk. And the, the challenge there is what we're saying is you really can't do that anymore this day and age. There's so much change happening in the businesses that the, the, the strategy has to change significantly from uh, from the old CISO kind of way. Um, the policies have to be really, really adaptive and open-minded for the scenarios like COVID where your employees have to work from home. Be cloud supportive um, as the company is going through that digital trans uh, transition and, and bringing in more cloud, uh, either cloud native solutions or really embracing the public cloud like Azure and AWS and uh, Google Cloud Computing. Um, and, and that's going to be the shift. And that shift being as a CISO, how do I actually minimize the risk 
in the organization while still enabling these modern approaches of, of DevOps, uh, continuous improvement, the digital transformation that's taking place because I'm bringing in technical controls that is facilitating um, the adoption of those new uh, solutions. Uh, for example, uh, DevOps is, is great when it comes to building a product. If done correctly, DevOps can be the best ally for a security team. Uh, again, the question, the part is it has to be done correctly. If it's not done correctly, it's an absolute nightmare to secure. Um, going to the cloud can become very beneficial for security as well, if done correctly. Um, but again, what kind of solutions does the CISO have at play in order to help really decrease that overall risk posturing, that digital transformation? Um, and doing so, there is, uh, if they're doing this correctly, they're also able to significantly um, improve the overall security posture. So that's really the big shift that's happening is enabling the business and adopting these modern practices because the CISO is actually able to manage that risk much more effectively. Uh, because they're able to manage that risk, the company is now able to accelerate in adopting these modern approaches. Uh, and that becomes a business enabler, uh, no longer a barrier or an obstacle, uh, but really an enabler for that digital transformation. So, Jack, I'd like to piggyback onto that a little bit. Can you uh, expand from your perspective uh, some of the shifts, the other shifts that are occurring, not just from a technological perspective, uh, but from a cultural perspective where humans are kind of enabled to uh, facilitate that digital transformation without necessarily, without the fear of, of, of setting the company on fire? Absolutely. And it actually kind of ties a couple of things we've all said uh, together, I think, in that the, the shift here is pretty dramatic culturally. So we've always had in the past, for example, this somewhat adversarial relationship between developers and operations and developers and security. And really what we want to do now and what we're finding to be most effective is to build these software pipelines in which all of us, us have full visibility and full transparency. And it's not from the perspective, as you mentioned a moment ago, of like, hey, I see you made a mistake here, but rather we integrate and we continue to shift things to the left is what we like to say. And so the developer has the opportunity to run the kind of scans, things like uh, software composition analysis and static code or static application testing scanning on their code before anybody else sees it besides them. They get a chance to fix it before it goes out. And by automating this as part of the build, we then know that everything that goes into our software pipeline has passed at least the minimum criteria. We call it hygiene, right? It's had at a minimum these kinds of scans or vulnerability testing so that we our confidence level is much higher. A hundred percent of things have to pass that test before it can get any further, which then means we can focus a lot more on the few things that, that do find their way through. And having this fully transparent opportunity, we all learn from that and have the ability to avoid those you know, doing it again. And it's through this open, collaborative, transparent uh, uh, culture that we're able to do that. And, and it shifts you know, to a very engaging way where everyone is enabled to do their best.
So, Alex, you made the comment on uh, kind of our preparatory call uh, that we had that, you know, DevOps isn't supposed to be chaotic, but it is. What are you seeing that is driving this? Well, if you go to the, the DevOps conferences, um, what's happened is they've lost, I would say, the core messaging, that iterative, constant focus on, on improvement, that the Kaizen model that the Japanese have really um, introduced to the fold, um, really trying to establish lean practices. What, what now is becoming just prevalent is what is the coolest technology that's out there? Well, what is the most new thing that everybody else is trying to jump on the bandwagon of and can i bring that in to my organization because i want to play with it and i can do things uh, faster ever so slightly and and that's kind of become what you see in a lot of organizations when it comes to devops this chaotic i'm constantly just bringing in change for the sake of change because uh, i went to a conference and somebody said that this product helped improve efficiencies by you know 10 percent um yeah, for that organization it may work, but you know, or each organization is extremely unique. And, and a lot of times what gets failed in the process is the governance that comes uh, into play. Um, and you bring in a new technology, there's all kinds of uh, implications that come out of that. One is, uh, do you actually have enough resources in the organization to support it? Great, but what if those resources leave? Uh, developers this day and age, they they start a job in five months they get bored there's 50 other opportunities for them to hop on uh, that that loss and and subject matter expertise especially when the platform is stood up can instantaneously disappear if you're not able to retain your top talent um and because of these types of issues uh the devops notion of just hey let's work with the coolest tech has kind of become the the standard permeated through a lot of organizations without really the emphasis of the true notion of what what is trying to be adopted uh, which is the lean methodologies uh, and unfortunately that that causes huge amount of costs huge amount of chaos um, and for the most part most organizations once they bring in devops they're like what what do we do here and unless they really are willing to take that cultural focus and, and significantly governing it controlling it uh, where they really start finding uh, the benefits but again it's a, it's a culture element it's not just one team and that's the other big mistake that's usually made uh, it's like one team that ends up doing it and because the rest of the organization hasn't really took on the devops mindset that one team ends up failing because nobody else is really able to um, embrace it um, and, and that's the that's the dynamic unfortunately for companies that don't uh, consider bringing in devops uh, they're gonna they're they're gonna end up losing out to the competition who have been able to uh, do DevOps and have successfully able to bring it in in in, in its truest sense and in, in a real sense where it's become effective and it's very lean because that keeps them very fast and agile and very quickly will overtake uh, their competition. Well, Alex, what do you think companies need to do in order to get out of their own way? When, I mean, when it sounds like digital transformation is inevitable, it's happening with or without you. Uh, you've got the CISO that uh, that uh, isn't going to perhaps be able to uh, run the command and control because of the sheer quantity and, and the of the and the sizes of the attack surfaces. Uh, needing an automated GRC type of platform. 
what do you th- what's your advice to, uh, to to executives out there that are having a hard time getting out of their own way? Well, visibility is is the biggest key when it comes to anything from a security perspective. When it comes to life in general, um, it, it will be a lot easier for us to make decisions if we if we have visibility. Uh, and the the data is there in most organizations, and and decisions really need to be you know the data should significantly be part of that decision making process. Though it's not the only thing, there's a lot of elements that come into play. Uh, but once you have visibility, you it can make things a lot easier for an organization to make those decisions, and it's a lot easier to have the proper philosophy, the strategy, kind of define when it comes to um, enabling an organization to to adopt DevOps. Um, and, and then DevOps, there, there, is a, there should be a significant emphasis on constant monitoring anyways. Uh, generally, it's not built around risk monitoring. It's, it's focused around performance monitoring. How is an application performing? Well, for an organization, risk is a lot more than just uh, the performance of an application. Um, but by having a more uh, holistic approach when it comes to looking at your products, uh, monitoring not just the product, but the teams, the servers, um, and, and being able to apply those GRC mechanisms uh, really can help leadership maintain a very strong, succinct perspective on how the overall enterprise health is uh, is taking place. Um, and that and that's becomes really instrumental in order to make sure that DevOps is being done properly in a cost-effective mechanism with proper governance built around it. Um, if, if you're building a product that is not supposed to be in AWS um, and people are releasing code in AWS, uh, you might want to do that. Um, you'd be shocked how many times developers, developers would actually build code, push it out into production that may actually be tied to any real business values. It's something they've been messing around with. Yep. Uh, they, they think it's beneficial. They'll spin it up in production. They'll let the code sit out there. They forget about it. The company is paying for that server to be operational. There wasn't really any business justification ever created for this thing in the first place. That's the mindset that that organization needs to adopt to make sure that, hey, I can't even push code out into production space unless there's a business justification. There's something in ServiceNow or Jira that expressly um, defines the need for a new functionality to be created. And the code that's being pushed out into production is designed to address that particular new business case. That that needs to be where DevOps has to go to, um, and and solutions are are available like Taurus here to really help provide visibility to that those kinds of um, elements. So Jack, we've got time for probably one more question, and then I'm going to need to wrap for this week's show. But one of the things, because you know he was just talking, Alex talking in terms of investment, and one of the comments that I know that you made to me the last time that we talked was that uh, you really feel like. Uh, companies have been making the easy investments and have been expecting the immediate ROI and that now it's time for them to actually start focusing on the hard parts. Uh, What are those hard parts and uh, what advice do you have for organizations that are needing to start investing in that portion of the journey that uh, isn't just going out and buying a piece of technology and sticking it in and expecting an immediate ROI? Yeah, we've trained our businesses to throw money and technology at problems, and it's never really worked that well, and it doesn't work at all anymore. Really, the the easy parts are implementing tools, are uh, establishing agile practices and teams. 
The harder parts are the cultural things that we need to do to support that, of getting from this individual contributor mentality into a team and into a generative environment, to have psychological safety where folks can bring innovation and new ideas to the table, can try new things. And we have one of two outcomes, either we win or we learn but we get rid of the who did that uh, and focus on what's going on and how can we make this better or how can we not do that again? And that's the hard part. It's the organizational structure. It's the culture. It's doing those things that enable people to do their best. That's the harder part. Couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, I, I really want to, I really want to thank uh, you and Alex for coming on this week's show. Uh, sharing your experience with the audience. Uh, the more I learn about this space, uh, the more that I actually see co uh, direct correlation with, uh, you know, I've spent most of my career in the area of asset intelligence. And there it's all about instead of, you know, in this side we call them vulnerabilities, in that world we call them failure modes. Uh, it's all about having the governance uh, structure in place in order to get across organizational uh, silos. Uh, and that the uh, the soft part is always the hard part when it comes to change. And people want to just throw technology at uh, all kinds of solutions. And uh, if you don't have the three centers of intelligence in harmony, the, the, the thinking center of intelligence, the brain, the emotional center of intelligence, the heart, and the action center of intelligence, the body, you're going to get suboptimal results. So uh, Really appreciate uh, you guys coming on this week's show. Next week's show, I'm actually going to be pivoting back to uh, kind of my roots. Uh, we're going to talk about asset intelligence. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we're starting to see an interesting landscape set up that with this convergence of low-cost wireless, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, edge computing, all of that coming together is creating a new landscape uh, that is starting to impact the insurance industry and the way the insurance industry is starting to think about how they may insure manufacturing sites in the future. Uh, so with that, uh, until next week, focus on moving as many of your to-dos to to-dones as you possibly can. And also, above all else, keep on bootlegging. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bootlegged Innovations. Be sure to join John Schultz again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk again next week.